Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Carissa Feliz. She's an associate professor in philosophy at the Institute for Ethics in AI and a fellow at Hertford College at the University of Oxford. She works on privacy, technology, moral, and political philosophy, as well as public policy. She's published articles in media such as The Guardian, The New York Times, New Statement, and The Independent. Today, we're going to be talking about her new book, Privacy is Power. And she's also the editor of the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Digital Ethics. So we have someone on the show who is a, it's an expert and it couldn't be even more timely given our world situation. So I want to thank you so much for being on the deep dive. Thank you for inviting me, Phil. All right. So I have a lot to cover. I've shown you the notes. And I want to start with a really what seems like probably a basic question, especially for someone like yourself, who is an expert in these topics, but just from my kind of being a layman, but being deeply interested in this, I think people really don't grasp what privacy really means. So I want to give us an opportunity to start there. And if you can kind of explain in your mind, your definition through your work, what does privacy really mean to us? Privacy is the capacity to keep certain things to yourself, in particular things that might make you vulnerable to others' abuses of power. So that includes things like your intimate conversations, your plans, your history, and very personal details like where you live, um, what you're allergic to, what you're afraid of, your personal relationships, etc. Privacy is important because the lack of it gives others power over you. And what we're experiencing at the moment is a drastic erosion of privacy that leaves us very vulnerable to abuses of power from both corporations, governments, and criminals. And... <clears throat> It's it's interesting because I think that's a, a very astute definition. I've heard others, but I think that captures quite a few actors within its praxis. But now I'm going to kind of extend that for a moment because it doesn't seem like most people, when I say most people, I'm just talking about a person just walking down the street, seem to care. Like, it seems like our privacy is something that we are... Um, fairly lackadaisical about, despite the fact that it has such a, a heavy and meaningful connotation in our lives. Do you think that there is a definition or a, a movement that will make the average person care and take this out of an issue that is um, academic and very um, like high level? That is certainly my hope. And that's partly why I wrote the book, I think that we have been caring about privacy for centuries. Every society we've studied has cared about privacy. And one of the reasons why we seem to care less now is that with the digital age, there has been a kind of distance between our privacy losses and then the consequences that we face. So in the past, 
it was much more evident when you had a privacy loss and then you had a negative consequence. So for instance, if you went to a work um, interview and then some the prospective employer asked you whether you plan to have kids or whether you had little kids and then you said yes and then they chose a candidate that was very much like you in all relevant respects except that they don't have a family and they're not going to be distracted by a family then it was very obvious how you were being discriminated against but in the digital age you don't feel it it doesn't feel like anything to have your data collected so you might give your data today to a data broker or some company who then sells it to a data broker. And the consequences of that might come six months from now or a year from now, and you might not even know that you were discriminated against. So you apply for a job, you just get an automatic response saying no, and you don't even know that no human being ever looked at your CV. It was just an algorithm that was sifting through your data. And maybe that piece of data that you gave away a year ago was the one piece of data that decided against you, and you'll just never know. So it's very hard to care about privacy when you don't see the connection between the loss of privacy and the bad consequences. So what my book tries to do is to make that connection for people, to show how our data is being used against us, even though it's invisible. And this idea of, of invisibility kind of runs through so many of these of these conversations. And I'm curious how you land on the idea of privacy within like three particular spheres. You have the home, you have your public life, which is, as I'm thinking, anything that's you moving around in the world. And then you have work, where you work. How does privacy manifest within sort of those three spheres of our existence? It's changing really quickly. It used to be much more simple. So your home was typically the sphere in which you were owed more privacy because it was kind of the space in which you could be yourself and do things that was nobody's business. And then the public sphere used to be the place in which you weren't owed much privacy. But then technology changes that. So the moment photography kicks in is really when we start seeing papers being written about privacy and people thinking more deeply about what it means. Because it used to be the case that if you went out into the street, you could be seen by your neighbors, by people walking about. And, you know, that that had a privacy risk. You might be the subject of rumors and whatnot. But once there's photography, you can capture people in a very different way. That image is evidence in a way that rumors aren't. And it can stay much, much longer. And then you can have people infer things about you months later after that photograph gets taken. And so that led us to think more deeply about, well, maybe we should have more privacy in the public sphere, given that we have this technology. And then in the workplace, again, it used to be the case that the workplace was a very confined space and time. It was eight hours. You went to a building and during those eight hours, you had a task to do. And that gave your employer certain rights to supervise that you were doing that task. But today, those three spheres have completely blurred together. So right now, I mean, you and I are in our homes. We're also sort of working. We're also sort of in the public sphere. We are interacting through all these platforms and so on that take us out into the world. And yet we're inviting that world into our living room. So it gets really complicated in a way that those spheres don't seem to be very informative anymore. And, you know, I wanted to to kind of ask you about that specifically, because obviously we are in the throes of the pandemic, um, different Every region, every country kind of has a different 
place within their continuum of having dealt with or effectively managed COVID-19. Obviously, the United States is a disaster to varying degrees, some places more than others, but disaster just generally. And you're right, we are conducting this conversation in our respective homes with all the the challenges that, that go along with that sort of existence. And it seems like, you know, COVID in particular has sort of laid bare this challenge of privacy more directly than, than maybe other workplace type challenges because we are employers to the extent that any of us have them is now capable of monitoring what we're doing. And also they're kind of in our lives, you know, space that was once just your spot to just chill has now become a studio in, in some cases. So how do we we manage that? And I noticed that the book is very timely and that it does discuss COVID quite as a um, present present moment in time. Yeah, it's quite a challenge. And I think COVID has unveiled other aspects that were already there. It just made them more exaggerated. So one is work encroachment. And, but it was there before the pandemic. So we are now getting used to being on call at any time. We are answering emails at 11 at night and 7 in the morning and during the weekend. And that is affecting our quality of life, among other things. Of course, our privacy as well, but um, our quality of life as well. And it's also made very evident how this narrative that we are volunteers, that we accept using tech and that if we didn't want to use tech, we don't have to. That's just so obviously wrong now. It was pretty obviously wrong before the pandemic, but now it's just blatantly obviously wrong. Um, If you want an education, if you want a job, if you want to have some social contact these days, you have to rely on these platforms. And we rely on them in a way that we don't get to negotiate the terms. It's their way or the highway. And the highway is very, very costly. It means social isolation and it means not being a full participant in our society. So we need to claw back our privacy fast. One of the things I want to kind of maybe shift back to is, you know, from a cultural perspective, you know, I spend my time in, in culture. You know, you can see arguments, like I think you've laid out an argument that folks have made as to, oh, well, you can just opt out, right? Like that's one of the more simple solutions, quote unquote. Um, And I think you've just elucidated why that's not as easy or effective as people might say, right? Those who are kind of proponent of all of these these tools. One of the other things I want to offer and get your perspective on it is that, you know, you'll see out in the world that people will say like, oh, well, our opinion or comfort level with privacy has shifted over time and generations. So what was once considered taboo in 30 years ago and 50 years ago and 60 years ago, now we're in a different world as it pertains to our privacy. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to how you think about that as a argument to, to these issues around privacy. One of the functions that I think philosophy has that's very important is that of suspicion. So whenever we get, uh, we hear a narrative, particularly one that is peddled by tech, we should be suspicious of, okay, who does this narrative benefit and who is interested in us believing this narrative? 
And of course, the narrative that we have somehow evolved privacy, and that was the word of Zuckerberg, is a very comfortable narrative for tech companies. And it's one that really benefits their business model. So one thing that is symptomatic of how that is not true is that in 2010, Zuckerberg said this about people evolving the norms of privacy, even though it made the headlines, he wasn't particularly criticized for it. It was just like a kind of recognizing that that might be the case. Nine years later, realizing that privacy is not a thing of the past, that people are more and more worried about it, and that companies are taking it more seriously, Zuckerberg changed his tune and argued that the future is private. Whether he believes it or not is is very questionable, and whether he's sincere about it is even more questionable. But the point is, he was picking up on something, and that is that privacy is not dead at all. In fact, it's reviving. And one of the reasons it's reviving is because we are gaining experience with it. So earlier, I argued that there has been this distance between the loss of privacy and then the bad consequences. But eventually, the bad consequences come, and we get to rethink our lives and how we're leading our data lives. And in a recent survey I conducted with a colleague at Oxford called Sharon Brook, we discovered that about 92% of people had some kind of bad experience related to privacy online, whether it was um, identity theft or public humiliation or even being the subject of spyware by an ex-partner or someone else. So the more we gain bad experiences, the more we realize that privacy is just as important as it used to be. And the kinds of reasons that we had then to protect privacy are still around. It's to protect our finances, to protect our physical security, to protect us against discrimination, to protect us against others misusing knowledge about us. And I think that's a really interesting point and segues to a couple of things I want to talk about in this moment that are kind of historical based and probably Again, kind of in more in that culture space in the sense that I wrote down a couple of just examples of some things. And as much as we're really focused on the technology and the tools of the moment, I'm curious how you would contextualize kind of what people would consider probably cooked in or or built in. Maybe that's just my language, kind of data collectors, people like insurance companies and credit card companies and credit agencies, right? Like, you know, here in the US, and I'm pretty sure it's somewhat similar other places in the world, you know, we have these credit scores that follow us around everywhere. And no one really knows what that means, right? It's just the assumption is that if my score is high, I've paid my bills and showed myself to be a good creditor. And and if I don't have a good score, it's proven the, the opposite, right? And this score it affects you tremendously, right? And credit agencies have had, you know, just recently incredible breaches of data, so have credit cards, and they don't seem to get the same sort of attention that the newer technology has. So I'm curious on that same continuum that we talked about privacy, is there a continuum to kind of connect the dots to all of this sort of arbitrary way in which we are quantified. Definitely. And one of the problems with these companies, um, nowadays, most of these companies like insurance companies and banks and so on depend on data brokers. 
data brokers are companies that sell and buy personal data. They want to have a file on everybody on the internet. And that file can contain things like your credit history, your educational records, your health records, uh, where you live, what you buy, all kinds of things. And they sell that data to insurance companies, to banks, to prospective employers, sometimes to governments. They also include location data. And there are many problems with these companies. One is that they're incredibly opaque. So most people don't even know they exist, much less how they work and what kind of data is being held and how it's being used. Secondly, because we're not the clients, data brokers and other similar companies don't have an incentive for data to be really accurate. As long as it's accurate enough such that they think that they have an advantage over not having it, that's enough. So let's suppose that you get branded as somebody who smokes. And let's suppose you actually don't smoke. But as long as, you know, they have, say, a 75% probability of getting it right, that's worth it for them to brand you as a smoker. So you could, in fact, be treated completely unfairly on the basis of inaccurate data. And you will never know and you will never be able to contest that data. So that's another problem um, data brokers have. And then the third one is, of course, the kind of analytics that they use on the data, and they can be very questionable in many ways. One way in which they can be questionable is that they can be inaccurate. So they can make inferences that are not really true, or they can use proxies that is not clear that have a causal relationship such that they should be relevant. So for instance, you could be judged on your credit worthiness on the basis of your zip code, or even something like the kinds of friends that you have. So those things we think are not the kinds of things that we should be thinking about because they're not based on merit. It's not that, you know, whether you have actually paid back your loans or not, whether you're actually a responsible person, it's just where you live or who happens to be your family connections and some of your friends. And then there are kind of even more worrisome moral problems that data brokers can have in, on the basis of which they make very important decisions. So, for example, some of the categories that data brokers use are symptomatic of a very problematic industry. And some of those categories include people who have been victims of rape, people who are HIV positive, people who suffer from impotence, people who have lost their children in car accidents, and those categories are problematic because they let us know that data brokers are looking for people's vulnerabilities. It's like a bit like a predator looking for the prey's vulnerabilities, and that should worry us. I think that's a very apt metaphor, and it brings me back to you know another sort of historical framing of this issue because what it sounds like is is kind of like this operates in much the way that the world does, but in a more amplified way in that those who are most vulnerable, those who are most susceptible will suffer the most. Everyone will potentially be impacted, but they won't be impacted the same. And yet there is this, you know, like we started the conversation, a lack of seemingly fervor and attention toward these issues. And what I was thinking about as I kind of read the book and went through this is, you know, if I take us back to an American context in the 60s, right, where 
you know, there were movements like COINTELPRO that were used to destroy civil rights movements and anti-war movements and infiltrate those movements. And the technology that was used was very human. You know, they had other people kind of infiltrate and lie and manipulate. You had phone bugs and, you know, all that kind of stuff that seems like the stuff of old spy movies. Now we have, you know, obviously things that are much more embedded in our lives. So all of that setup is just to say that do you think that those who come from who are in or come from or have a marginalized existence just by the nature of our social structure are more apt to really believe that all of this stuff is going on? Because like I said at the beginning, some people just see are like, I don't see any of this. Right. <laughs> and, and I wonder if it's because generally the power of the state and the state as state government and corporations tends to not affect them as much as maybe other communities. Definitely. Or it might affect them, but later on. So at the moment, say if you live in a disadvantaged neighborhood or in a disadvantaged situation in the United States or in other countries, if you want some kind of welfare help, that might only be given in exchange for extra surveillance that other people don't have to be burdened with. And that's kind of the start. But it doesn't end there, of course, because that surveillance will have very bad consequences in the rest of one's life. And now that you mentioned uh, civil rights movements, I was just updating the book. Because this landscape changes so quickly, it's really hard to stay on top of it. But I was updating some details in the book. And now there are many activists who are worried that they are being surveilled and that the police might have used very invasive tools like stingrays, which are these machines that basically vacuum data that of phones nearby. They can see phone calls and they can see messages and browsing history and everything. And activists from Black Lives Matter protests were worried about this um, surveillance and for very good reason. Another example of um, data being worse or data surveillance being worse for marginalized people is the Trump campaign in 2016 identified 3.5 million Black Americans as possible persuadable people who could be deterred from voting. So they got targeted with content that either talked so bad about Hillary that it kind of unmotivated them from voting or that kind of introduced doubts about the system, how, you know, voting doesn't make any sense, doesn't matter who wins, everything's so bad that nothing will ever change. And that's really, really worrisome because it's basically a kind of disenfranchisement, like modern disenfranchisement. And I want to keep on the kind of social movement aspect for a little bit more, really as it pertains to diversity and, you know, the people routinely making these tools don't come from these sorts of backgrounds, right? They don't cook this stuff into the pie, so to speak. You know, someone like myself, you know, no secret as to, you know, my kind of my political views to the people who listen to the show is that certain actors I don't trust, right? So just automatically, right? Because I've done the history, I kind of know what's going on. So even if you know, I'm just kind of like, mm, I don't know about that, right? Like the minute it comes across my desk and I think others have a different 
relationship, right? They view, they don't view the state as a potential malignant actor and other folks, whether that's present cause or historical cause. So is it possible that if we bring other people to the table, whether that be, you know, people of color or women or other communities, that we can start to build in other outcomes because we're asking better questions at the beginning. Definitely. And that's one very big thing that tech can do and should do and has to do for things to change. Although there's also a worry. So for instance, facial recognition algorithms work worse on non-whites and on women. And on the one hand, that is bad because it shows that different kinds of people are not in the databases and they're not being taken into account. But at the same time, it might actually be good that it's not so accurate so that there can be some leeway in which people are not so surveilled. But definitely, in general, it's a priority to have women and people uh, from all kinds of backgrounds and diversity design these tech tools for them to think about how it can affect all stakeholders from the start, because otherwise it never gets even a thought, a second thought. And I want to think about the sort of market way in which we we frame these conversations and give it an opportunity to maybe go into other directions. And, and what I mean by that is you, you spend quite a bit of time in the book, kind of discussing the book is called Privacy is Power, right? So power is very much a focal point of the book. But I'm curious about what you think about the idea of power as seen through a market state. So a transactional state, data is something that we possess by our movements, our living. Companies, organizations, whoever are those who want it to then economized in some way. And all of that is kind of put through this, runs through this mill of transaction and market outcomes. And is there a way to expand this conversation where the power doesn't have to run through a market constraint? We don't have to set this up as something that is merely a function of how we transact with actors, each other or the state. It's interesting how surveillance has gone from something being as done mainly by governments to something being done mainly by corporations and then just government sort of tagging along and supporting it because it can make a copy of the data. And one way in which we have to fight this kind of surveillance is to think about it as, well, at least a couple of ways. One is you know, there are some things that should be outside of the market because if they're inside, they kind of create either power asymmetries that are very toxic or some kind of warping of the ultimate objectives of society that we don't want. So things that even the most capitalist society thinks that shouldn't be in the market, that shouldn't be for sale, include votes, because if you buy votes, then you just completely undermine democracy. You shouldn't be able to buy people. You shouldn't be able to buy the results of sports matches. And I argue that you shouldn't be able to buy personal data because it has this other power aspect that just creates incredible 
power imbalances. So if we give too much of our personal data to companies, then it shouldn't surprise us when the wealthy rule our lives. And if we give too much personal data to government, we risk sliding into authoritarianism. For democracy to be strong, we have to, as a citizenry, in control of the data. And another way to think about it is that when there's something very important um, related to power, it's typically healthy for it to be divided between different sectors in the population and different spheres of life. So it's good if there is a balance between the corporate world and the government and the citizenry. And whenever two of those kind of gang up too much against the other, we get imbalances that end up being bad for all three spheres. So it's really helpful to think about personal data more as a matter of power rather than a matter of money or just finances or just market. And I want to bring us back to COVID for a second, because it seems like, I think you made a very astute point at the beginning that COVID has kind of laid bare things that have already existed. So I think about, you know, these kind of DNA tests that are out there for like ancestry and tracing, you know, where you came from and, you know, very popular, growing more and more popular here in the U.S. The commercials are incessant you know, with people who found that long lost relative due to, you know, they use 23andMe or Ancestry.com, doesn't matter whichever one, right? So in a way, when I think about those things, like, you know, I don't mess with any of that stuff. I'm like, please, you know, um, but I'm kind of the skeptic. But nonetheless, uh, you know, people are giving very personal, private information, you know, the core of who you are, like DNA to just some organization, Right. And fast forward, now we're in, again, gripped in this moment of COVID where, you know, our privacy is being, you know, it's part of our privacy is being used to stop the pandemic, hopefully, right? In the sense that there's contact tracing and, you know, depending on where you might go, there's apps that, you know, if you, if you can travel in this time and you go to particularly countries in, in the East, they're going to give you an app and track you and make sure they know where you are and all that kind of stuff. And I'm curious, as much as I believe that we should be doing as much as we can to stem the flow of COVID, do you see how the idea or the mentality of this type of tracking, particularly when it's dealing with our bodies, our biology, will sort of usher in this new norm that we might not be necessarily prepared for? I hope not. I can see the risk and I'm hoping we can be smart enough to kind of to resist that because it's so dangerous. One of the things I argue for in my book is that privacy is actually not a personal preference or an individual thing. It's a political matter and it's a collective matter. So when you say if you did a genetic test, one of the reasons to be worried about is that it might not only affect your prospects of, say, insurance or employment or whatever it is, but you're also exposing your parents, your siblings, your kids, and even quite distant kin, including very distant cousins that you might never heard of, but who might be injured by your testing nonetheless. So we have a collective responsibility to keep our privacy safe, even if we're not particularly worried about ourselves as individuals. When it comes to COVID, another thing that it laid bare was this mentality of 
as soon as there's a crisis, it seems that privacy is the first thing to go, as if it's something very that's not very urgent, that's not very important, and then comes back and, and bites us. So the last time that this happened was after 9-11. The narrative was that if we gave our data, then the government could keep us safe. Now, it turned out that big data is not the right kind of method to prevent acts of terrorism, because while big data specializes on patterns in extremely large amounts of data, like patterns in buying habits from people who are billions of people and who buy things every single day, it's very hard, if not impossible, to find such a rare event like terrorism. So no matter how much data we would have had and how much surveillance, nobody could have been able to predict that somebody would use a pot to carry out a terrorist attack in the Boston Marathon or that somebody would use a truck uh, to hurt people. That kind of event is not, it seems like it's not predictable or preventable from the perspective of surveillance and big data. So now we're here again, we're in another crisis, and we're being told that if we give up our data, um, governments will keep us safe. And one thing to keep in mind is that tech is not magic. It can do a lot of things, but it's not a magic wand that you can just use to solve every problem in the world. And in this particular case, at the beginning, there's a lot of enthusiasm with apps, a lot of techies being very excited about this and not even talking enough with epidemiologists who have spent their lifetime studying pandemics. And it turns out that apps don't seem to be all that useful. And it's not surprising because apps can only work through proxies. They can never really tell whether somebody has the virus or not. They can only try to infer it on the basis of contacts. But that's a very rough inference. So say you and I meet on the street and I have COVID and we give each other a hug. That doesn't count as a contact from the perspective of the app because we weren't together for 15 minutes. But nevertheless, there could be an infection going on there. And in the same way, you could get the infection from a contaminated surface and the app wouldn't be able to tell. Or you and I could be sitting very close together, but in fact, there's a glass between us and the app would identify us as a contact when in fact we were perfectly safe. So the app is just a rough inference. It's not like a test for COVID. And people forget that what we need in a situation like a pandemic is medical solutions. So it's protective equipment, it's vaccines, it's social distancing, it's masks, it's um, medicines to treat the disease. And Technology doesn't necessarily, is not necessarily the best answer for these problems. It's more like a case of hammers looking for nails. Yeah, there's an awful lot of hammers out there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. To say the least. Yeah, many people cite China and say, well, you know, China was able to control the virus because of its authoritarianism and its surveillance uh, with the apps. But in fact, when you look at it, what China is doing now, whenever there's an outbreak in a city, is to test the whole city. Really, what's doing the heavy lifting there is mass testing and something that both the United States and the United Kingdom and many other countries have been really bad at. Yeah, that's one of the many things we're... (laughs) bad in this in this moment. And I want to talk a little bit about building systems, right? Like we we build these systems with the idea that they're always going to be administered by or run by those who are benign, 
right? So we say to ourselves, well, you know, the Patriot Act, you mentioned that in the book, and that is, again, a kind of a major piece of legislation here in in the United States. And so we'll say like, oh, well, that was the moment and we kind of needed to do this thing. And yeah, we didn't really like that guy for the most part. G.W. Bush was kind of unpopular, very unpopular and should remain so. And they'll say like, well, he wasn't a, a good person, but when we have a better person, they'll somehow use the thing better, right? And, and then we have Obama and we kind of keep it and we kind of liked him. He can, you know, hit a, a good jumper, you know, he's kind of cool. So then we kind of lulled back to sleep, right? Because we trust the person at the wheel, you know? Now we have a lunatic, you know, that we're hoping to get rid of. And then people are kind of worried about these things again and say like, oh, man, if we could only get in somebody better, an adult will be in the room. And is there a way that we can move away from kind of building for the best practice, you know, or building for the best person, right? Like you mentioned Mark Zuckerberg and at one point, People thought this guy could run for president, right? Like when we were still in the moment in, of the Obama years, there was serious talk among some folks that this is the guy we would need, right? This sort of, I don't even know what to describe him as, this kind of benign CEO that can do all these things. And now, you know, fast forward five years later, four to five years later, I don't think anybody was seriously considered this person, I would hope. You know, we live in strange times and consider this person for president, right? So how do we, you know, move beyond the personality and the benignness, the perceived benignness of the person and really functionally talk about systems and how they act on our lives? That's a really good question and really broad. So I don't think I can give a satisfying answer, but Something I can say that with respect to privacy, that's a really important point to have in mind because once you build an architecture of surveillance, you never know who's going to use it in the future. And chances are sooner or later, you're going to get a lunatic in power, whether it's in your own country or in another country, because that's another thing. If, say, the U.S. has a lot of sensitive data on its citizens, and let's suppose that you have amazing governments and never have a lunatic again and everything goes well. Okay, but any other country can hack that data and use it against your citizens. So to think that to be so optimistic that you think you can have a ticking bomb um, without ever going off because everybody in the world will be benevolent forever more is just incredibly naive. And, you know, I want to give us an opportunity to kind of talk about some potential solutions, because I think that's one of the more powerful things that the book does is, is does many things well. And I didn't start off kind of giving, I think, full praise to the book because I think it does many things well. I'll just name a couple. One is that it's very readable and relatable. And that's high praise because a lot of times in these spaces, people writing about tech issues, privacy issues, it tends to be like a heavy lift if you're not a technologist, you're just kind of like, what are you talking about? And and this book, thankfully, doesn't do that. I think it's something that anyone can pick up and lean into and feel very comfortable with. And I think it's also, like I mentioned a little bit, that it's very much in this moment. It's talking about the things that we are all 
dealing with and will likely be dealing with for the next, you know, very present moments and our kind of near future over the next few years. And then finally, you start to offer potential solutions, you know, ways forward through all this, which some, many books don't do, right? They just kind of be like, oh, well, we're fucked and goodbye. You know, they kind of leave on that note and you're kind of flipping the page to be like, what do I do now? You got to buy another book. So, um, (laughs) you know, you offer a potential way forward through all this. And so I want to give us an opportunity to kind of walk through some of your, your ideas because I found them to be very encouraging despite of a very heavy topic. Thank you. So the first thing is to ban trades in personal data, because if we make personal data profitable, then we're just creating incentives for two things. One is for people to collect more data than is necessary just because they can sell it. And then for people to actually sell it, that's that's the second thing, to anybody who wants to buy it and to the highest bidder. In many cases, the highest bidder turns out to be very questionable actors, including criminals. So there have been data brokers who have sold the data of people, including credit card numbers, to fraudsters. It's that bad. Another thing is to stop the default collection of data. The default should be no collection of data, and you would have to opt in to collect data. So just to give a sense to people of the kinds of things that they know about you. Um, So a data broker and somebody who has your data, including tech companies and governments, can know where you live, where you work, who your friends are, who's your family, with whom did you sleep, are you having an affair, how much do you weigh, whether you're drinking, how much do you drink, what do you eat, what do you watch, whether you're sleeping well or you have insomnia, your heart beats, all kinds of things. They really know more about you than you know yourself or that your spouse knows about you. So this is incredibly sensitive data. Another thing that's very important is to delete data ever so often. And there are two reasons for this. One is that keeping data for as long as possible is just like keeping a ticking bomb and eventually it will get misused. But also personal data turns out to be the kind of thing that expires quite quickly. It grows old quite quickly. And if we don't delete it, we're going to end up with algorithms that are not very accurate. So for instance, how many times have you liked something on Facebook that five years later, you don't like it anymore, but you never go back to click unlike. And that data is still being used for the purposes of judging you. So one of the ways in which I found really helpful to think about privacy is just to think about historically what has happened in the past. Because if something has happened in the past, chances are it's going to happen in the future. That's the best predictor of whether something can happen in the future, whether it's already happened. So during the Second World War, A lot of things happened related to privacy that are very good lessons. One is that the first thing that Nazis did when they invaded a city was to visit the registry because that's where the data was. And when they were looking for Jewish people, that's where they could figure out where the Jewish people were, where they lived, who were their families. And there's a study that compares the Netherlands versus France. The Netherlands was a country in Europe in which more data was collected. There was this guy called Lenz who was a fan of statistics. He was one of the pioneers of statistics. He developed the ID card and he wanted to have a system that tracked people from cradle to grave. For comparison, in France, there was an 1872 law that banned registries from collecting certain kinds of data about religion for privacy reasons. And the difference was that 
in the Netherlands, the Nazis were able to find and kill about 73% of the Jewish population. And in France, they found and killed 25% of the Jewish population. The difference is in the hundreds of thousands of people. And that's because some people decided not to collect certain kinds of data. And that's the power of minimizing data collection. Now, with respect to the power of deleting data, there's a story about the Amsterdam registry. So a resistance cell in 1943 tried to destroy the registry to avoid Nazis from finding Jewish people. And the way they did it was they went into the registry, they set fire on the files, and they had a plan with the firemen. They had some people who were sympathetic with the resistance there. And the plan was that the firemen would arrive late and that they would use as much water as possible to destroy as many records as possible. And unfortunately, they were very unsuccessful. They only managed to destroy about 15% of records, and the Nazis managed to find and kill about 70,000 Jews. And the lesson from that is, one, like the Dutch had collected too much data, and so are we. And the second mistake they made was that they didn't have an easy way to delete data quickly in the event of an emergency, and neither do we. And we're doing it at a scale that's absolutely unprecedented. So those are the first two things to do. A third thing is to implement fiduciary duties. Fiduciary duties are duties that are pertinent when there is a professional relationship in which there is a big asymmetry of power. So examples include doctors and patients, lawyers and clients, and financial advisors and clients. And in these cases, the professionals have a lot of power, a lot of knowledge, and the client or the patient doesn't have a lot of power or a lot of knowledge and is in a position of vulnerability and is entrusting the professional with something very important, your body, your finances, your legal case, or your personal data. So I argue that whoever wants to collect or manage personal data, they should assume a responsibility that they can only use that data to benefit the data subject. Whenever there's a conflict of interest, if there are fiduciary duties, that means that the professional has to put the interest of the client first. So let's suppose that your doctor has a conflict of interest because they want to perform surgery on you. And that's unnecessary for you, but they want to practice their skills or they want to have a data, an extra data point for their research, or they just want the money. But they can't do that because your interests come first. So in the same way, just like you know, a scientist, it's not enough for a scientist to say, hey, I really want to be a doctor because I enjoy cutting up people. They have to accept a responsibility of care. It's not enough for people to say, I'm really interested in personal data and, and want to analyze it. If you don't accept a duty of care with respect to that data, then find another job. With great power comes great responsibility, and personal data bestows great power upon those who analyze it. Yeah, I love these solutions, and I'm glad you shared those stories um, because they were among, I think, particularly the story about the resistance in Amsterdam and in France, because I think that was one of the, I mean, the, the book is filled with good anecdotes and stories, but that was among some of the most more powerful ones, because I think a lot of folks don't really grasp how much technology was a major part of the Holocaust and its ability to happen. There's um, really good books that have kind of studied punch cards and IBM and its role in the Holocaust that I would highly recommend that folks check out if they have an opportunity. We've kind of covered a ton of really great things. And 
you know, we can go on forever, but we won't in interest of time for both ourselves and the listeners. So I want to get to the final two segments of the show, which is off the dome and the drop and off the dome are just some quick fire questions. There's not many of them, but I wanted to ask a couple and well, few, I won't say a couple because <laughs> a couple just says two. When you think about your work, your process and how you do your research and all the things you're involved in, what is your number one most essential tool? The thing that you couldn't replace, even if you tried? in your work process? Writing. Writing as a kind of thinking. It's really a technology to think writing. And, you know, we've kind of talked about a lot of technology, a lot of websites and stuff. If there's one of these sites that we should 100% get rid of and eliminate in our diet of social, however one defines that, which one would you recommend we delete off our phones and shut down our accounts and erase immediately? Probably Facebook. That's an easy one to go for. Well, not easy, but easy because I, you know, Facebook's terrible. So it's good to know I'm not the only one in the Facebook boat. But it might be easier to uh, just let go of Google search, but because there's a very good alternative that's DuckDuckGo that doesn't track you. Ah, okay. You know, I'm going to do a quick, like just a little anecdote. It's funny, you know, when I first started using the internet, there were things like Netscape and, you know, I'm dating myself, you know, it was a long time ago, right? But I feel like the, the search has gotten worse. Like we have more information and the search gives me nothing that I need. It's like pages and pages of like the wrong stuff. You know, it's just crazy how that happened. I'm like, how was search better in like 2000 relative to like now? It's just such a a weird thing that always pisses me off when Google's giving me page after page of like crappy, <laughs> you know, crappy search recommendations. So yeah, definitely switch over if you can. We didn't talk about this person, but they're omnipresent in tech in so many ways, um, which is Peter Thiel. You do mention him in the book, but we didn't really respond a lot to him right now. And I want to give you on a scale of one to 10, um, one being merely bad and 10 being terrible. Where do we put Peter Thiel? <laughs> I don't think I like scoring people. Uh, I guess we're doing what we said we shouldn't do. <laughs> yeah, so I don't think I give him a number, but I think we should be vigilant. <laughs> Let's say okay. I think I love your answer better than I love my question. So <laughs> vigilant is a good way to put it. And the last off the dome I want to give you is a little bit of a take on that old game that people play, you know, party game, you know, where it'll be, who would you marry? Who would you potentially sleep with? And who would you kill? I'm going to switch it up for three people in tech. Who would you fire? You know, who would you put in jail? And then who <laughs> would you kill? And the three choices are Zuckerberg, Bezos, and Elon Musk. <laughs> so who gets merely fired, who gets put in jail, and who gets the guillotine? Again, I don't think I would kill anyone, even if they deserve it. Well, it's a metaphorical kill. Who gets the worst of these three outcomes? <laughs> so let me put it this way. I think the world would be a better place if Zuckerberg wasn't in charge of tech, any kind of tech. <laughs> <laughs> if he was just a private citizen doing his thing. 
Fair enough. That the rest of them will just leave them off the pile. And and, and for editorial sake, anyone knows me knows I'm anti-death penalty and I'm also anti-jail. <laughs> so the question was merely in a party game sort of context. We're not serious. We're not really going to kill anybody here. Um, we're <laughs> peaceful people. So I want to leave a couple of moments to get to the drop. And the drop is just a recommendation of anything at all that could be of value to our listeners. It doesn't have to be even serious. A lot of people come on the show, they think they have to give like this really deep drop. And I'm like, eh, it could just be like a cartoon you like. It doesn't have to be anything serious. It can be serious if you want, but it can't be anything at all. I have a drop. I hope you have a drop. I can go first. You can go first. Tell me which one you want to do. You go first. Okay, awesome. Um, my drop is actually a, a TV show, a TV series that I just started this weekend. And so by the time this airs, I would have already finished it because I'm going to binge it. And it's called Gangs of London. And, you know, it's kind of weird. It's available on Prime, but then you had to get like AMC Plus. And I'm like, I'm not paying for anything else. I got like the seven-day trial. So AMC Plus, I'm using you. And I'm going to drop you the minute I'm done with this show. It's only seven episodes. I only got four more to go. But it's, you know, kind of a typical, but atypical kind of crime gang story set in London, one of my favorite cities very diverse. It does a lot of different things than one would expect from that genre. Um, and it's called Gangs of London. And that's my drop. I am torn about, I have a few good ones that I've uh, run a across. A few is good. People give me more than one. That's fair. Okay, that's good. So I'll give you three. One is privacy related. And that's one of my favorite movies. It's called The Lives of Others. And it's about East Germany, and it's really, really good. So that's one. And then a couple of books that I've read recently that I really enjoyed is one is Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Amazing book. And then a recent novel that I really enjoyed is Elizabeth Strout's Olive Again. Awesome. I'm not familiar with the last one. I am very familiar with Maya Angelou. So obviously she's amazing. And The Lives of Others is a great movie. That's a fantastic movie, actually. So yeah, I don't have is. to agree with drops, but I love yours. <laughs> well, you should check out Elizabeth Stroud. She's really something. Yeah, it's so dangerous for me because I love my guests. They always come on and have such amazing drops. And then I end up like getting a lot of times their drops when they're books. And so my pile is getting higher and higher and higher. <laughs> so I'm going to get off this. I'm going to look it up and I'm probably going to end up getting another book. So um, thanks for adding to my pile in the best possible way. This has been a great conversation. I really want to thank you, Professor Valise, for being on the show. Thank you so much for being a part of the deep dive. This was awesome. Thank you so much. It was really fun. It's been a pleasure having Carissa Valise join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.